say what you will about generation 4.5 versus generation 5, then that's an accurate criticism and the virtues of sensor fusion and all that other stuff. If you're looking for range and payload, the F-15 is pretty incredible. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. Vago Maradian is on assignment. Something a little different this week. We have the usual interviews with industry figures and military officers lined up for the weeks ahead. But this week, we're joined by Richard Abalafia, the Managing Director of Aerodynamic Advisory and probably the best-known name in aviation market analysis, to look at some of the very diverse headlines of this week. We'll start with a quick review of what they are and then get into the details, nuances, and unique insights you only get from Richard Abalafia. And it's all powered by GE. The GE Aerospace XA100 engine is tested and ready to deliver 30% more range, 20% greater acceleration, and twice the cooling to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. Learn more at geaerospace.com XA100. And Bell sponsors the Defense and Aerospace Report's daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. GE Aerospace sponsors our naval coverage as well as this program. And Spirit Aerosystems Defense and Space sponsored our coverage of the Air and Space Force Association's Airspace Cyber Convention. The headlines this week were dominated by the Marine F-35B that went missing after its pilot ejected or was ejected, F-35Bs can do that, over South Carolina. The subsequent discovery of his wreckage not far away and in pretty much a straight line from where it had been going disappointed a number of conspiracy theorists, people who either thought it was going to fly in a straight line until the fuel ran out, or that there were squads of Chinese frogmen at the bottom of South Carolina lakes waiting for an F-35 to fall on them. One interesting thing, though, looking at the photos of the wreckage site, it appears to be a smear accident rather than a straight-down auger, the kind of incident where the F-35 was carrying significant horizontal velocity. But that's not inconsistent with the rest of what we've seen about this incident. The Marine Corps probably knows a lot more than they are saying, but they will come out with an accident report before too long. In other news, Boeing intends to increase F-15EX production to 24 per year, according to Jane's. Those are intended for international customers, so the world market may be starting to think that a 4.5-generation high-performance aircraft for about the same money as a fifth-generation might not be a bad idea. Denmark has received its first four F-35s, which means that they can send their F-16s to some other country in Europe that might be needing F-16s. By the way, Belgium and Denmark have announced that they intend to start training Ukrainian pilots on the Viper next year. Also in the delivery column, the U.S. Air Force has its first T-7 Red Hawk trainer and its first EC-37, the Compass Call mission that's being rehosted from C-130s to a Gulfstream G-550 airframe. And the U.S. Senate is moving to confirm General C.Q. Brown, the Air Force Chief of Staff, as the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, along with new heads for the Army and Marine Corps. General Dave Alvin, the Vice Chief of Staff, who has been nominated to succeed General Brown, is not on that list because his nomination has not yet been formally reported from the Senate Armed Services Committee to the Senate as a whole to act on. Poland's defense minister says his country needs two more squadrons of fighters. They're an F-35 customer, but it's not clear that that's the type they would be looking for. For example, Poland is also buying T-50s from South Korea. And did you remember to send out your cards? 
the U.S. Air Force turned 76 years old this week. That may sound like a lot, but remember, they plan to fly the B-52 until it's about 100. Nobody knows what it means to fly a 100-year-old aircraft. Aviation this year turns 120. We'll get into more detail on those stories and more with Richard Abalafia in just a moment. And hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cabas Ships, hosted by Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. And joining us now is a good friend, Richard Abalafia, Managing Director of Aerodynamic Advisory. And of course, listeners to this network know him well as part of the gang on the business report that you hear every Sunday morning. It's not a Sunday without it. Richard, thanks so much for coming back to the Air Power Podcast. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me, JJ. It's uh, always great to be on. Looking forward to talking air power. Well, it's a fascinating week to talk air power because there's a variety of different headlines. I've gone over the basics of them, but some of these are just fascinating to get into more deeply. I think the one we have to start with is the hullabaloo starting on Monday of this week about the quote-unquote missing F-35B, where a pilot left an F-35 over South Carolina, and the military made the announcement somewhat later that if anybody sees it or knows anything about where it went, please tell us. Yeah, let do some Facebook, no less. And uh, X, uh, X Twitter. But that's led to great consternation about the idea of the U.S. military not being able to track its aircraft, leaving aside for a moment the idea that this is a stealth airplane and meant not to be tracked. Wasn't this kind of a demonstration of how non-aircraft literate a lot of the press may be? Yeah, I'm afraid that's right. You know, and of course, there's always been that chorus in the background that says, well, this third thing is just a money-hungry giant pit gone wrong of a program. And, uh, you know, it did, didn't take much scratching between for that to, that to come out, I'm afraid. There's a lot of reasons that you wouldn't be able to track an airplane. Uh, for example, this was part of a two-ship, apparently, and often in that situation, one of the aircraft will be using its transponder so that the planes can be followed and the other won't to keep from interference or cluttering up the return. This was the wingman and may not have had a transponder on in the first place. Secondly, there was an ejection, which involves a rocket motor pointed at the cockpit. And electronics and chips and wires aren't really too amenable to a rocket blast at fairly close range, I would suspect. I would suspect not. You know, a little bit uh, rough on the on the furniture. Interesting, too, that the plane continued on for some way afterward before finally impacting the ground and being found. Yeah, I would have thought that things would have been badly compromised by the pilot banging out, there being no canopy and all, but uh, it kept going. You know, the thing I kept thinking was uh, the big headlines 30 years ago, take you back, you know, start of our career, something close to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it was, uh, you know, people started to say, wow, if you if you look for a stealth plane, you can find it. This is a scandal. Why are we buying the B-2? Why are we buying the F-22? If you remember, there was that Australian test that indicated that maybe they looked for it. And now it's scandalous somehow that they can't find it. Uh, <laughs> can't win either way, can you? 
Well, we can say that stealth works perhaps maybe a little too well in this case. Yes, yes, here over civil airspace, but that uh, that wing and uh, and partner transponder explanation is is pretty compelling for why that wasn't done. That makes perfect sense. And of course, it's fascinating all the conspiracy theories that sprang up. The Russians took remote control of the plane and flew it to a carrier off the coast or something like that. That is obscene. We all know it was a Dassault Rafale salesman who did this. <laughs> the fingerprints are all over it. Indeed. Okay. We've probably had about as much fun as we can have with that topic, although the, just the sheer number of memes it generated was a big deal. Other news that came out this week was a report from Jane's that Boeing intends to increase F-15EX production. They think they can sell 24 per year, they don't say for how many years, around the world. What's the actual international market look like for a plane of that class? Yeah, this is in a lot of ways the plane that won't die, for, and for good reasons, actually. You know, I mean, it's got its little niche. You know, first of all, don't forget, of course, the Air Force is still procuring its batch of, uh, I believe the program of record is, uh, what, 88 memory serves somewhere around there? Yep. Um, obviously, that's only good for a few years. And you've got the the Qatari planes, I believe they're up to, I, I want to say 48, 36 or 48, but possibly more. There was a report about, I want to say eight months ago that the Egyptians were looking at it very closely. And that was interesting because I could just see a strategic need given Sudan, given Libya, given other strategic requirements for the Egyptian Air Force, and the fact that all of a sudden the Russians are not going to be a reliable provider of two-engine heavyweight strike aircraft mm -hmm. anymore. I see why they would be looking at it. That's interesting. You've got Indonesia uh, that has signed a kind of letter of intent or, you know, memorandum of understanding to have lunch or something. And the Indonesians seem to sign a lot of those. But on the other hand, they are spending money all of a sudden having purchased Rafales and actually put cash down on them. So it's a very likely thing there. And, and of course, you know, you've got other users in the background that could conceivably go back to the well. This is kind of a one of a kind plane in terms of payload. I mean, say what you will about generation 4.5 versus generation five, then that's an accurate criticism and the virtues of sensor fusion and all that other stuff. If you're looking for range and payload, the F-15 is pretty incredible. And it's been in production, of course, for what, what are we looking at? 50 years now, 76, I think was when it first. Uh, Believe your right. Yeah. And uh, whereas the Super Hornet's clearly sunsetting after many successive generations. The F-15 does look like it's going to last a little longer. For me, the really interesting story, mm -hmm. um, you know, the Saudis had a longstanding re requirement for about 400 fast attack jets. Eurofighter Tranche 2 has been stalled since you and I were in different jobs or, or something, you know, quite a while, like over a decade. <laughs> and um, it doesn't look like it's going to be reactivated anytime soon. And of course, they're enthusiastic F-15 users. And they've got, you know, with the tornado retirements looming, a strike fighter shortfall, which means either they can talk to the French about Rafael, they might mm -hmm. not be ready to do that, or also, or, or not mutually exclusive, or get some F-15s, or in addition, get some F-15s. So I think that's probably in the background, because that could be 48 or 72 more. All this to say, I think I understand Boeing's confidence that they could keep going Energizer Bunny-like at 24 per year for quite some years now. 
To what extent is this an uh, artifact also of the idea that F-35 has sort of reset the price range for medium single engine fighters so that suddenly a twin engine heavy fighter is price competitive? Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. I mean, at the end of the day, the F-35 program unit recurring flyaway some hybrid price, you know, roughly is in the you know, 80, 90 million class. And an F-15 isn't much more than that. And it gives you a lot of plane. It, it's not as modern, but it gives you a lot of plane. And it used to be that there were like five up until the year 2000. Believe it or not, there were only five export customers who'd ever signed for a jet in that class. Mm-hmm. Um, and before that, there were only three or four, you know, Japan, Israel, Saudi, and uh, Australia, and then South Korea and Singapore joined the club. And now because of the F-35 resetting the price, exactly as you say, there's like three or four times that. (laughs) It has transformed the structure of the world combat aircraft market. And all of a sudden the F-15 is more of a, you know, I I don't want to say it's got the same potential user community as the F-16, but it's uh, certainly Mm -hmm. got a more, um, shall we say, a much bigger user or potential uh, customer group. And it's a fascinating idea to be a salesman for this aircraft who's saying, yeah, the F-35 is stealthy and yeah, lots of other countries are going to be flying it, but you can have twice the engines, lots more range and a truck instead of a sports car. What do you yeah. think? You know, it's funny. It takes you back to this ad that um, the Boeing folks placed in the Korean newspaper circa the year 2000. My Korean friends have told me this. If it's, if it's wrong, please, Boeing, don't sue me. But the ad basically said... If it chose, an F-15 could pick up and carry a Rafale, you know, and in terms of its payload, yeah, that was right. Mm. <laughs> it, it was about <laughs> the same as an empty Rafale. And um, boy, it does carry a lot. It really does. And the other thing that I think we, we lose sight of sometimes is just how massively bandwidth constrained the world combat aircraft market is. It used to be, of course, that mm. there was overcapacity and, uh, you know, you'd have to really choose. But now... It's a real selling point. You know, would you like to wait in line till 2029 to get your first F-35? Or maybe we could fit you in for an F-15 in 2026 or 27, sure. which is conceivable with the Air Force's cooperation. So having capacity, having bandwidth might also play in the F-15's favor. That's interesting because you and I have both been talking for some time about how the 156 per year production cap on the F-35 is well below the demand. And in fact, if you just look at the number of aircraft that have been ordered or are projected by the United States and divide it by the 14 years that are said to remain in the program, planned to remain in the program, you're at over 180 aircraft a year just to fulfill the existing order book. So anybody ordering now is getting in line and we don't know where they're getting in line. They don't know where they're getting in line as opposed to, well, yes, as you said, here's something that you can have very quickly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, what's fascinating is when we do those calculations, that's, you know, what you and I do, we'd be doing this for a hobby, wouldn't we, if we didn't have to do it for our job? <laughs> when, when, we, when we look at these numbers, we're not even taking into account the people who should have or could have or would have, whatever, order jets. So you've got the UAE waiting for the activation of the Abraham Accord provisions or whatever. Everyone knows it's a strategic priority, big cut, you know, oh my God, it'd be so good to land that order. Where do you get 
the space for those 50 aircraft, <laughs> you know, and, and there are so many others, you know, Greece has only has ordered a small number, but they're an important NATO ally mm -hmm. in a strategically sensitive part of the world. There are so many customers, Singapore, they've ordered what, half a dozen or something. So you got to wonder where that bandwidth is going to come from. And essentially, if you're ordering an F-35 today, as you said, you're ordering it for delivery date indeterminate. Whenever we figure we can get you in the line, and if somebody is willing to let you cut in front, that's fine, but don't bet on it. Yeah, that's right. And it sort of has a lot in common with Airbus's A321neo, which I think mm. has about 4,000 outstanding orders. And uh, I'm, I'm not making that number up. You know, people are just waiting in line. And of course, Boeing has generously told the market, um, yeah, we're not doing anything in that class. So just go stand in line and buy something from Airbus. Mm -hmm. I think that's actually what they said. Maybe it's not exactly what they said, but that was clearly the takeaway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've got these two programs, the 321 and the F-35, that are not only recession-proof, <laughs> but basically just guaranteed to have an incredible 10-plus year runway of uh, sky's the limit in terms of production. Now, to be fair, F-35s are getting delivered. Countries are getting them. And one of the countries that has started to get their first examples of the type is Denmark. Their first four have arrived. This is all part of the great European fighter hand-me-down festival, it seems like, because now that Denmark has those, they can start to divest F-16s. I wonder where the F-16s are likely to go. Yeah, can't possibly imagine, uh, possibly to a completely unrelated training academy in Romania or something along those lines, right? Right, although um, Belgium and Denmark have both announced that they're intending to train Ukrainian pilots how to fly F-16s, just coincidentally. Indeed. You know, there's a certain, I don't know, I, I, I'm a proud, you know, card-carrying NATO fan club member having gone to grad school over there in the 80s and in, in, in Europe and did my actually wound up doing my master's thesis uh, in Belgium, you know, for a summer. And uh, boy, there's something remarkable about the countries participating in the EPG, the F-16 European Participating Group of Memory Serves, Norway, Denmark, Belgium, Netherlands, all now getting together and planning to support a, an important strategic ally to the east of, of NATO and thanks to the Russians themselves, no doubt, one day a future member of NATO. <laughs> uh, so I, I think there's a certain, wow, this really is the best alliance ever feeling I get from this. Under the heading, then there were three. For a long time, we've been seeing the two prototype T-7 Red Hawks flying around. Now the Air Force has its first actual Red Hawk that they're allowed to own and fly and take home with them. What does that mean when you start to get that initial delivery? What does this tell us about the program and where it is? Because there have been unexpected delays in that program. There certainly have. Uh, not just the usual supply chain thing we're associating with these days and times, but also some uh, aerodynamic issues, uh, I believe, on the wing. Apparently, they've been corrected. I think the most important takeaway is that when you accept delivery of production planes, then you've got the production conforming thing down. You know, it, it's, you're good to go. Now, of course, there is the question, assuming that no further design mods are needed or any, any additional upgrades required, what does that production ramp look like? Obviously, you've got the line itself, learning to build it, and of course, the supply chain, whatever else. What's that ramp up going to look like? Because those T-38s are really long in the tooth. 
and you're hearing all sorts of stories about very low readiness rates. Mm-hmm. So it's good news, but now's the next step. Okay. Also being delivered, the EC-37, we mentioned that uh, compass call moving from C-130 in a big leap to the Gulfstream G-550 platform. Anything to be read into that? That program seems to have been proceeding pretty much on schedule. Yeah, and that's certainly good news. You know, take you back a bunch of years, it was just sort of assumed that the Air Force would be migrating everything to kind of a business jet and space-based asset mm-hmm. uh, ecosystem, uh, whatever, JSTARs, AWACS, everything. The only exception being the combat jammer, you know, which remember the EB-52 concept. Um, it hasn't worked out, right? I mean, for AWACS, they've decided, oh my God, the requirement is really still there. And well, let's buy new AWACS, you know, Wedgetails. And let's have a lot of people on board. I mean, there was a while when they were thinking, no, you put all the sensors up there in a lightly inhabited or uninhabited aircraft, send it down to the folks on the ground. Instead of sitting in the back of the airplane, they can look at the same tubes, but be safe on the ground. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm sort of fascinated by that. Why didn't that vision of distributed battle management sensors and whatever else work out as planned? Was it a latency issue? Was it a deployability issue? I don't know. I'm just fascinated that it hasn't worked out. We seem to be going back to a more traditional platforms or in the case of the EB-52 or JSTAR is just outright neglect and, uh, you know, I hope that the case of JSTAR is that satellites will do the job for us. Well, the B-52 is still out there and is soldiering on. I mean, they do plan to fly it until it is past 90 years old. Uh, I don't know that I want to be the one flying it when it's past 90 years old. But to be fair, most of those B-52s are George Washington's hatchet, right? The handle's been replaced twice and the head three times, but it's still George Washington's hatchet. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, I, I remember walking around inside one, as I'm sure you have too. And it, boy, it's just, it, it, it really feels solid. <laughs> <laughs> and inside is just a bunch of racks, you know, just mission equipment and, and weapons and whatever. And uh, so, okay, they built it right. Margin of error, tolerances, plus or minus 40%. You know, sure, of course it's going to soldier on. And of course, being re-engined now with... Uh, with Rolls-Royce BR-700s uh, starting in a few years. So why not 100-year-old planes? Okay, getting back to the international market for a moment. Poland, the defense minister recently said that they need two more squadrons of fighters. This is a country that's been on something of a buying spree lately. Interestingly, they didn't talk about what kind of fighters. They're an F-35 customer. They're a T-50 customer. What does a potential Polish order mean for international arms trade? Yeah, you know, and here's another illustration of a country that's simply looking for bandwidth, right? I mean, (laughs) with the the case of the the FA-50s, the Koreans said, okay, you're going to have to wait for F-16s, you'll have to wait for F-35s, but we can get these (laughs) to you very quickly. And they're like, did you say quickly? Uh, Great. (laughs) So uh, that's really interesting. And, you know, again, it's a different universe, not to keep picking on our friends at Dasso, but a few years ago, boy, they were lean and hungry and um, trying to sell. And now they're kind of sold out and they can't even, you know, they can't even get up to rate two. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's agony. So saying we could rule them out, yeah, 
maybe. I wouldn't rule out Eurofighter. You know, you've got uh, a little bit of bandwidth there, perhaps, maybe, mm-hmm. and commonality with the Germans. I think F-16 and F-35 is too big a weight. F-16 is probably too big a weight. Of course, they are F-16 customers. Any number of possibilities here, but none of them are terribly likely. Who knows? Maybe they're on the list of the Boeing F-15 folks when they uh, they look at that two per month in perpetuity rate. Well, and the Dassault folks were in the more or less enviable position of being the not F-35. If you decided that that wasn't what you wanted or you didn't want to afford that, they were the alternative. Now we have South Korea and possibly other countries coming forward with fighters to compete in that market. Yeah, that's right. And I think if the KF-21 were going to be available quicker, that this is something Mm -hmm. the polls would certainly look at. Absolutely right. Finally, Richard, we're commemorating a birthday this week. The United States Air Force is 76. Neither of us, to be clear, was around when it was created. But as you look at where the United States Air Force is today, are they on the path to a rosier future? Well, boy, first of all, congratulations, U.S. Air Force, and thank you. (laughs) That's uh, all you can say. I wish there was... More. I wish there was more bandwidth available. I wish there was more budgetary bandwidth available to give them what they needed. There are major areas of capability that I think are of concern, particularly strategic airlift. You know, you've got basically the C5Ms on, I don't know, another 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. C17s are probably being flown harder and faster than people expected. And CX still hasn't been stood up as a program. Obviously, the T-38s were run ragged, and we just hope the T-7s can arrive in the numbers and timing. And uh, we certainly hope the F-35 production program allows for recapitalization. You know, so I guess it all comes back to how quickly can they get the tools they need. And uh, again, thank you, U.S. Air Force, and hopefully bigger and better sooner. And of all of those, the T-38s and the B-52s have been around for most of those 76 years. Yeah, my goodness. That's right. Another little fun thing that I'm sure you've done, knowing you, is uh, visited the building in Key West where the Key West agreement with the Army was signed. And uh, how you had such wildly diverse air support philosophies evolve. You know, the Air Force being high altitude precision guided munitions and the Army saying, okay, we're going to have this uh, rather impressive attack helicopter capability stood up as a reaction in part to the Key West Agreement. So looking back to the creation of the Air Force, I'm endlessly fascinated by that treaty. And of course, moments Mm -hmm. in time where the Army decided to get a little bit aggressive, aerial common sensor, and of course, joint cargo aircraft and other efforts to sort of encroach upon the Air Force's turf that didn't quite work out as planned. For more years than either of us cares to count, Richard Abalafia has been the go-to guy for aircraft analysis, commercial and military. Thank you so much for joining us again on the Air Power Podcast, and we look forward to listening to you on Sundays. Thanks so much, JJ. Great to be on, and uh, especially great to, uh, to talk about air power with you. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast, and if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.